The world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layered timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve is available from $995. Current users can download the updates for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagicdesign.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com. And uh, we have a very special cutting room today. With me right now is Lauren. Hi. And you haven't been here for quite a while, since January. So I hear. I thought it'd be much shorter than that, for sure, but I don't know. Well, we have a special podcast. There's a reason you're back. Yes. You know, I got kind of over it. And then something <laughs> brought me back into the fold. You became too popular? I just had too much going on in my life. Yeah. So the thing that brought me back was Sharknado. The Sharknado. So very exciting because I had already watched it when we heard that there was the possibility of being able to interview the editor. So Lauren and I sit down with William Budell. Yes, I'm involved. I am there, guys. And this is the the first time Lauren's ever been involved in the interviewing process. That's right. So if you're not a fan of it, let us know. Let her know. Yeah. Info at AOTG.com. Gord will make sure he forwards all those emails straight to my account. And of course, you can get us on Twitter at Art Guillotine or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Art Guillotine. Spread the love and hate. If you find it very frustrating how often I interrupt Gord, then you're just getting more insight into our marriage. Well, I think it's funny because there's a lot of times where you almost translate what I'm saying for William. <laughs> so I'm just, it doesn't make any sense, any coherent under, you know, it just doesn't link up and then you just finish it for me and reorganize my words. Oh, perfect. I'm glad yeah. I could do that. If only I could do it without stepping all over you. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. So, of course, before we get into this interview, we have to say check out our friends over at That Post Show. Go to iTunes, give them a rating, give us a rating. Also, check out, uh, we have some friends over at Going Postal, which is a new podcast you can check out. And, uh, yeah, go check them out on iTunes. Give them a rating and, and uh, a little boost. They need, they need uh, some love, too. Yeah. Of course, we have our interview with William. So crazy. I can't imagine my second project being something that was so talked about, like there's so much pressure and exposure there that it's both terrifying and awesome at the same time. But great guy, was really interesting to talk to, you know, so well-spoken and I just really enjoyed having the time to chat with him. So I was yeah. glad that I was in- involved, so thanks Maybe Gord. Maybe when we do our next live event in LA, maybe we'll drag him out and make him tell stories on stage. Yeah, because he, he's a, a writer too, that'd yeah. be great. Let's just make him do things. We do <laughs> not know him that well <laughs> to make him do things. But let's let's let let him speak for himself. So here's my here's Lawrence in my interview <gasps> with like William Budell. Let's start with how you got into the business and your background in the film industry. Yeah, I started working in Chicago, uh, where I was living after college in a. It was a, this production company that did basically television documentaries, things for A&E and History Channel, things like that. And so that's where I started. I was a tape operator 
you know, and then I did some motion control, did some assisting in the online room. So that's basically uh, where I got my start and then moved on to um, working in at another company or in the Chicago area that did sort of DVD releases and also owns the rights to some features and helps uh, produce features. Actually, they recently have been producing some features for Ty West, who's a horror filmmaker. You might have mm-hmm. heard of him. Yep. And, uh, friends, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. MPI Media did uh, Innkeepers, and I think they also did House of the Devil. So one of the sections in VHS, I think, too. So then I worked there briefly, and then I worked also in commercials as an assistant. And then I, around that time, uh, I came here. And I kind of had to start all over again because if you aren't working in LA, they don't really, they don't really recognize it so much all the time. So unless you're, I mean, I'm sure if you're like working on huge international blockbusters, that's different. But if you're just, you know, working sort of television and, and smaller features or whatnot, they often, you know, you kind of need to start at ground zero again. And so that's what I did. I actually had to get some, you know, like retail type jobs and try to start hitting the pavement and finding things. And eventually I got a post-PA job on a television show over at the Paramount lot. So was it a hard decision to decide to go to L.A. and have to kind of build back up from the foundation again? Or, you know, or was it just a necessity at the time or other reasons that you were moving anyways? You know, ultimately, I have plans, let's say, and they, they involved Los Angeles or New York. I mean, you know, this is where the entertainment industry is especially Los Angeles, you know, that's, this is the engine. Just, you know, whatever you're doing in terms of low-budget filmmaking or cult filmmaking or, or whatever, this is the engine that really drives everything in a lot of ways. And you are somehow a part of it, even if you're not a part of it, if you're, if you're making a film, you know, in the United States. So I wanted to be near that. I knew, I knew that it was important. People, people kept telling me, you know, you need to be there, you need to be there. And I think that's pretty much true. Unless you've already established yourself... Unless you're working on something huge outside of outside of the you know California, Los Angeles, New York, that somehow gets a huge cult following somehow through underground marketing or something, uh, it's pretty hard to be heard in terms of any position in film, whether you're an editor or a cinematographer, a director, a writer, whatever. So yeah, it just I wanted to be near the engine, and also Los Angeles is a fascinating city. I mean, I love Chicago, love it, love it, love it. But it was also nice to sort of get away from both the cold winters and I miss them now but I do love Los Angeles as well. And how do you approach getting your first gig in LA knowing that it's kind of going to be uh, an arduous task? You know I went and I sat at Starbucks and I started contacting people. I I met an editor in New York who's, who's a prominent editor and he turned me on to some people and I met some people through them, and then, you know, and you just keep sort of networking one person to the next, to the next, to the next. And oftentimes, there's nothing going on that they can turn you on to right away, but you sort of build a network, and you start meeting people, and you start getting advice about how to find work, and, you know, different post-production supervisors, and things like that. And eventually... Uh, I was able to get some post-PA gigs. After the post-PA gigs, I actually did a little bit of assistant editing, but then I stopped for a little while so that I could write, and I wrote for a few years. And then I returned recently, and then recently got into the editing, and uh, Sharknado was my second feature. So Your first feature was Cleaver Family Reunion. Right. My first feature was Cleaver Family Reunion. And it was a really fun family comedy. Well, yeah, it's sort of like that Tyler Perry genre. I guess he's his own genre now. Style of, of film, right? So yeah, when... It's sort of a raunchy, Tyler Perry-esque family comedy romp. 
<laughs> so when you were when you were cutting it, did you sort of utilize those as as inspiration? You know what? I had just gotten back from Brazil. Well, there's a couple answers to that question, but I'll start off. I, I just gotten back from Brazil from being cinematographer on a low budget film there, and which may never see the light of day. I'm not sure, but anyway, that's what I was doing. Just got back, and a guy I knew, a friend of mine, who's an editor, Chris Conley, great editor. He had already finished the first cut of the film. And he needed to go work on another project. And so he brought me in, and uh, that's how I got on Cleaver, after the first cut. And so I sort of carried it through until the end. Yeah, and I didn't really have, I I wasn't, say, trying to make it, you know, I I wasn't terribly influenced. Oh, I guess what I was going to say is, when I was in Brazil, I saw my first Tyler Perry movie ever on DVD, which was uh, Diary of a Mad Housewife, I think Mm -hmm. it's called. I had just watched it in Brazil while I was working on a film, a cinematographer there. And then I came back, and this movie just kind of flopped in my lap. And, you know, so if, if there was any Tyler Perry influence in, in the editing, I guess it might have come from watching it, but I doubt it. I mean, I'm a huge fan of comedies coming back to, you know, the silent era. So mm-hmm. uh, I would say that that was probably, you know, the whole history of comedy films was probably more uh, influential than any, than any particular sort of contemporary comedy style. So how do you approach then cutting a comedy? So like, because a lot of it comes from the actor's delivery to determine your pacing. Was there a lot of structuring or reworking with the the actor's delivery? There were certain themes that needed to be uh, refined heavily uh, just because the first cut was rough. A lot of it was already cut really well and didn't need to be touched. Probably the majority of the film, really. And as far as how I approach comedy cutting, I mean, look, Sharknado is my second film. So I'm new at this. So I try to listen to the film. I love characters. I love story, but I I really love characters. And the characters tell you what the story is going to be through their actions and their dialogue. And I just try to listen to that. And whether it's a comedy or it's a horror film or it's a whacked out romp like Sharknado, I I just try to feel like, what does this movie want to be? And I try to take it in that direction. Because you've got this background of writing and you've done a bit of directing, like shorts, I believe. That's correct, yeah. How does that apply to your editing work? Well, I can tell you, I think editing is close to 50% of directing. When you're putting something together, you really see what you need when you're shooting. And I think every director should edit. I mean, and every writer. I mean, editing to me is writing. It's just writing with images and sound. So, and it's the final rewrite of the film, as many people have said. It's true. I mean, ultimately, I guess the final rewrite of the film is also the sound mix and the coloring. All of that matters. So, how does it affect me? I mean, when I, largely when I'm on set, I'm I'm thinking in terms of cut, and I'm thinking in terms of impact. And, you know, what this shot leads into the next shot, how do they collide? What does it do to the viewer? Mm-hmm. And when I'm, I also think, having edited, what do I need? You know, what do I need to tell the story, especially if I'm in a hurry and we're losing the light or whatever the case may be? How do I, how do I tell this economically? I'm a big fan of austerity, actually, like the films of Monty Hellman or John Carpenter's early films. You know, a lot of it is by necessity, like low budget, no money. But if you look at films like The Shooting or Ride in the Whirlwind or Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13, there's a real kind of beauty to the sparseness, to the austerity of, of the images. It, it builds a kind of foundation and you get used to, you know, he keeps cutting back to the same camera angles because those are the only angles he has. And in a way, it kind of creates this rhythm that's really simple, 
but really effective, and it also puts you in a mood. There's a wonderful kind of mood to a lot of austere films. Well, it sounds like you've got like a big background in film history. Did you study film at university? I took a few classes, but I actually studied English literature because I found that a lot of people were studying technique and the technical side. And this isn't true for everybody, by the way, not at all. I'm just saying I I saw that you could learn a lot of technique. You could learn how to use a, a particular camera that was popular at that moment or learn how to light or learn how to record sound properly. But a lot of people weren't really telling interesting stories with interesting characters. And I love literature and I, I decided to study literature, get my degree in that, and then go into film. And after a while of sort of just throwing myself into the industry, I decided I didn't need film school. It was super expensive. It was, you know, the benefits of film school to me is this, that you have connections uh, that are your classmates and, and sometimes your teachers and whatever network that your school provides, depending on, you know, whatever they have, and the, the equipment, which is big. And perhaps most importantly, or one of the most important things is mentorship. You know, if you really have some extraordinary teachers that can really inspire you, inspire you up in the right ways and get you crazy. Because you have to be crazy to really want to do this for any extended period of time or especially for the rest of your life, at least a little bit crazy. And, you know, we can take that off on my box. So I'm there. You know, I, I'm all in on this. This is what I want to do uh, without question. So anyway, I, I didn't choose film school. I wanted to do the, the English literature degree. And then I got into the industry and I just tried to learn that way. And I find that you can learn technique and technology as you go along with people who are patients. And if you, if they're not patient, then you go outside and you do it somewhere else and then you come back and you say, here you go, I know how to use this or that or do this or that. But really storytelling is where the real work is. That's where the greatest amount of effort needs to be put. When I think of literature, I think of the various, I guess, for lack of a better term, like the movements. So I think like of the beat generation, I think of yeah. you know, the romance novels. Is there a particular area that you, you focused on at university or is there it just sort of an overall? It was English language literature, uh, mostly. So I was mostly studying either, you know, British grades or American grades, you know, the lost generation, say, or, you know, I mean, some of my favorite authors are Fitzgerald, Hemingway, Faulkner is amazing. Faulkner might be my favorite author, I'm not sure. Shakespeare, clearly. People like that. What sort of writing have you been doing? You mentioned that you took some time and did writing. Is it script Uh, writing or is it... Script writing. Script writing. Yeah. So what sort of medium? Feature films. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's primarily what what I've been interested in, although I am greatly interested in television as well. I mean, especially now that American television has really, in the last 10, 15 years, taken a huge step up from what it used to be and is now closer to what British television has been for years and years. Sure. It's nice to, it's nice that there's more outlets for people who have ideas that, you know, that it's entertainment, but it's also, it, it affects you. It affects your life, you know, to see some of these programs that they're, that they're putting out there. They, they make a difference. They well, say not, something. They have ideas. And not limiting your writing to two hours. It's also kind of exciting, too. Right, right, yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting, if, I guess, if you try to go from a more economical form, like, uh, although television is economical, too, in a way, because it's episodic, but yet you're right. You can develop characters over whole seasons and years showing the depths of, of the character of a, of a former high school teacher who now makes meth, you know? Isn't everybody so, <laughs> watching that one right, right now? Right, yeah. yeah. 
So, yeah, it really is interesting. It's, it's a great way to study character television. Mm-hmm. I'd love to jump to Sharknado because yeah, I know that absolutely. Lauren's probably itching to to get to that. So with with a name like Sharknado, it, it's clear from the beginning to everyone that's involved that it's sort of like a sense of humor, tongue in cheek film. So did the film evolve sort of a playfulness as it went along, or or was that sort of the internet's excitement behind it? Was it originally intended and intended to be so playful and, and kind of, you know, roll out as a B movie? I think so. I wasn't involved from the very beginning. You know, the editors are often brought in later or sometimes anyway. And in this case, that was the case. Um, the, the scripts, I know that, you know, I've, I've talked to Thunder and I've read some of his interviews and things. And I know that he had wanted to make this something humorous you know, from the start, that, that it was important to him that it have humor and that it not just be humorless, that it be, that it not be just completely straight, I suppose. That said, you know, the humor, I think the company was interested in making sure that it was a kind of subtle humor where, you know, you're not winking at the audience 24-7 uh, in terms of the characters acknowledging that they're in a silly situation or whatever. Um, it's just you throw these people supposedly normal people into a situation that's extraordinary and completely ridiculous and you see how they react um well i think that's how it works why it becomes so good is because it's like it's playing it all like they're the actors are giving it their all they know they're not winking at the camera essentially it doesn't feel like a scary movie or you know (laughs) a movie Right, right, right. No, not at all. I mean, I've yeah. never seen those movies, but I know what you mean. And yeah, I mean, yeah, they, I think they were definitely not wanting to go in that direction. But at the same time, they it's so it. hard not to wink while you're saying a tornado full of sharks. <laughs> so I think the fine balance between, you know, it being a, like a ludicrous idea that is amazing um but also the way it was delivered by the the actors it actually did manage to find that balance where you could go for the ride with them and um and and it could sustain the 90 minutes right that's great i'm glad you feel that way i mean the actors i think worked really hard you know anthony bronte the director worked hard to to get them in the right headset and to, to have them uh to have things flow together and and work as a whole, so that's nice if it came off. Now, if that's the case with, like, not winking at the camera, how did you judge the actor's delivery? Because it's one of those sort of moments where you could go over the top. and like, So how did you analyze the footage with the directors? Well, I was cutting the first cut without Anthony because he was actually, you know, directing it while I was cutting. We had to cut this thing really fast, and it might be evident. And uh, <laughs> so what I was trying to do is... I want, you know, I want the characters to feel real. I want them to feel serious and, and engaged in whatever reality they're in, whatever world they're experiencing. And I, I figure that that will help the movie overall to be what it should be. So whether it's going to be funny or scary or ridiculous, you know, if, if the actors are in their performances are tuned in to that world, that's, I guess, probably how I'm gauging what take to choose and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, and then I imagine later when Anthony comes in, he's, he's thinking similarly, what is the best performance for this scene? It's just like anything, you know, even in a small, wacky, goofy little movie, you know, it's, 
it's the same old things, you know, what, which, what tells the story. And you mentioned um, a challenging schedule. What, how long did you have to edit? I actually got to edit around three months or so, which is pretty good for some of these movies. It's fast, I think, for a studio, a big studio movie. But the cuts, we had to turn in cuts quickly and often to the uh, executives at uh, the asylum, the company that produced it. And then, you know, we had about three cuts or so that also went to sci-fi. So it was sort of constantly just trying to keep up with the next cut and uh, make sure that they were getting what they wanted in their notes and that we were, you know, keeping the movie alive and making it the best it could be. How did this film sort of come about initially? Like, how, how, would, how did you get involved with it and hear about it? I worked on Cleaver's, Cleaver Family Reunion, and then uh, that was a great experience. And Chris, who had brought me on that film when he had to go, he recommended me to Anthony, who he works with regularly. They've done at least three films together, maybe more. Well, two or three at least. So he recommended me to Anthony for Sharknado. Uh, Anthony called me and we talked. You know, and we went over the movie, and I had lots of questions because I, you know, like you guys, I was thinking, you know, oh, you know, if a shark thrown from a tornado and, and, and comes at you, if you step aside and it hits the ground, isn't it pretty much done? Yeah, like, right. Where, how are we going to make this movie? You know? So, uh, but, you know, it's, you kind of have to get into that wacky mindset of, this is the world, and this ridiculousness is part of that world. But you have to serve that ridiculousness, and that will make it fun. So that's how I got involved. It was Chris Conley to Anthony Franze, and Anthony said, okay, you're in. And we went on a wild ride together. And was it called Sharknado when you originally joined? Well, it was called uh, Dark Skies on set, but I think that they had already presented a poster at AFM called Sharknado, and that kind of took off on the Internet. That was that had some buzz with it because people were just like, Sharknado, and they saw the poster, and it had the tagline, enough said, and that was it. That was all it took, and it became, you know, a meme of its own. And, and so they had the title. I don't know the full history of which decision was made when, but I think that they were very interested in using that title ultimately, and, and I thank them if they did, because that's a large part of the deal. And can you give a sense of what that first conversation was like with Anthony <laughs> when he's trying to kind of answer your questions, or at least just the, the initial description that he could give of what the film was going to be? Well, sure. You know, the, the film was written by Sandra Levin, who's also a director, and he was kind of, he went to Costa Rica to work on a movie called Apocalypse, and so he left directing chores, Sharknado, open, and they, they chose Anthony C. Ferrante, really talented guy. I had wanted to work with Anthony, actually, I should mention, too, because I had seen a, a little movie that he made called Hansel and Gretel uh, with the Asylum, and I, I thought it was one of the, uh, the better Asylum films I'd seen, maybe the best that I'd seen so far, and so I was really excited to work with him, and we talked after he you know, decided that I would edit, and I'm not used to seeing this type of film necessarily. Like, I love exploitation. I love genre. But I just hadn't seen a lot of films of this ilk, if there are that many. And so I guess I was sort of more trying to get my head in the right space of how do we approach something that's so utterly, as you said earlier, ludicrous, so that I can serve it well and, you know, make it true to itself. How do we do this thing and not look down on it? How do we do it and make it exciting? And so I guess, you know, initially, Anthony also had those questions himself. He hadn't written the film, Thunder had, so he got the script and he's reading it. And he's like, first of all, you know, it's crazy. It's a crazy script. Second of all, 
we have no money and no time. Right. Okay. And we have to do this movie that with a studio would easily probably cost between, you know, 80 and $200 million, <laughs> depending on what stars they got and that sort of thing. And how many so, sharks they throw. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, how much time, how much time that they had spent with the visual effects, you know, our visual effects guys, God bless them. They're super talented. You know, they have no time to throw these things together. And they just did a great job of the time that they had. So it's just a matter of, you know, I, I was literally asking Anthony questions like that, you know, like, what, what is a Sharknado? Like, I get it, tornadoes and sharks, but how is this going to work? Like, how do we make this believable, you know? How do we make the sharks threatening and all these, these sorts of things are the sorts of questions that are going off in my mind. And he's just sort of, he's like, you know, I know, man, I know. I know, <laughs> you know, and we're just, we're kind of going back and forth and giggling and laughing. And, you know, we just decided to yield to the beast, you know, to, to just serve it, to do what we needed to do to make it fun. You know, yeah. that was really what was important uh, was just to make it fun. You know, we can be accused of making something really low budget, something that was done in no time that looks a little different than a, than a big studio movie that's had two years or whatever of production. But if we make, the, you know, we cannot make this thing boring. It has to be fun. It just has to be. There's no other way about it. So that's yep. what we did. We tried to make it fun. You succeeded. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. And, you know, I bet so many people, you know, so many people did a lot of work on this, and they deserve, they deserve kudos. Well, you know, people, the actors and the writer, and Anthony, the director, and cinematographer, and the crew, they all worked really hard. So. It seems that you guys also use stock footage in there. What was sort of the mix of, of footage that you guys used? One of my favorite, uh, sorry, just real quick, a digression, not a quite a digression, but one of uh, Kurt Loder, he tweeted during the, the first showing. Yep. And what did he say? He said something like Stocknado or something. Or, <laughs> you know, he, he just made some comment about the stock footage or something. And I think I just replied like, thanks, you know, but uh <laughs> Because it's like, first of all, Kurt Loder is talking about our movie, you know, and then second of all, you know, it's like it's so fun that, you know, he's calling us out on the on the mad amount of stock footage that is in this thing. We used mostly one service for the stock footage and uh, it served us well. You know, we were just constantly injecting more stock footage into the movie, you know, with each cut, it was just growing and growing and growing because we had to open it up. We had to make it big. This movie was shot in 18 days plus pickups. And it just, it needed to feel big, even though it was small. It seemed to also really help with, you know, just establishing weather, because that's something that, you know, there's only so many ways to go about that with a small budget. And it really helps to use, you know, something that looks real because it is real. Right. And they had like one day of rain, and it it might have rained for like half an hour. I'm not sure how (laughs) long it was. And it was just sunny Los Angeles for the majority of the shoot. And Anthony was just going nuts. I mean, he was just chasing weather. He was like, I think it might rain tomorrow. You know, he was so excited. And then it wouldn't rain, you know, because, you know, the cloud layer burns off of like a couple hours here and just gone. There's no rain. So it was constantly a search for how do we create this environment where supposedly water spouts and hurricanes and tornadoes are affecting the landscape and there's sharks flying from them and, and they're supposed to be flooding. And, you know, we, we did not have the money to flood blocks and blocks of city, you know. And this movie was shot in the Los Angeles area. So that in itself is interesting. And for a low-budget movie to be uh, shot in Los Angeles area and then to have to create all this weather, it's a a bit of a challenge for a small movie. But stock was a huge help, like you said, huge help. 
how did you uh, ensure that you were kind of melding it all together so that if there was sunshine outside, as much as they tried to, you know, tone it down on set, how did you manage to make sure that you could kind of go from stock into, you know, your L.A. shots? You know, I don't know that they had a lot of options. Basically, I tried to find stock shots or we tried to find stock shots, because other people definitely put in stock shots as well, that somewhat fit the terrain. That, you know, I mean, a lot of it's like hurricane weather. And when was the last time L.A. had a hurricane? Right. <laughs> I, think, I think that was like, I think that was like 18 never, maybe. <laughs> so some of it's kind of obviously, to some people, not, you know, Southern California, especially if they know Southern California really well. Other pieces fit pretty well. It was just a matter of doing tons of searches, you know, and we did have other stock uh, sources as well, but it was just a search. A lot of time was spent trying to find the stock footage that would fit certain scenes and not just, you know, the weather, but like the weather in this particular part of the city or in the hills of Hollywood, or whatever it was at that moment that we needed. It was a lot of searching. They just announced that they're going to do Sharknado 2, the second one, which is its title. Right. Which is an right, amazing right, right. title. <laughs> right, right, right. Are you, are you going to be involved with that in any way? I haven't heard anything about that. I don't know, to be honest with you. So I don't really, yeah, I don't, I don't have any news to report there. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But it would be interesting, you know? Well, I was going to say, um, when you were talking about dealing with weather and sharks flying and all those things, this may be the only project that you'll ever have to deal with this, but maybe not. (laughs) Maybe you'll have a second run at it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, it's typical of micro-budget film to use a lot of stock footage to open up the film. So that's nothing new. It's funny because Sharknado was a film that required a lot more work, I think, in some areas and some other films. For instance, our film was just chock full of stock footage. The amount of ADR that we did on it, we had the ADR people complaining, like, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, they weren't, really, they weren't really complaining that much, but they were like, I think I think one of them might have said that this was the most amount of stock footage, uh, ADR that they'd ever seen, you know, in an Asylum movie. Um, I'm not sure if that's factual or not, but, you know, it was a huge amount of ADR. There was a lot of pickups. It was a lot of work to sort of try to mold this thing that had this ambition of being a big movie and a creature feature in a disaster film, World in One, following a family and some friends through the city, trying to survive and battle the Sharknado. And it may, I'm not sure if it looks that way, but it, it took a lot of work just to sort of get it to feel somewhat bigger than it was. A lot of smoke and mirrors, a lot of illusions, which is fun. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned Kurt Loder tweeting about Mm -hmm. it. So this is kind of two questions. One, was it terrifying once you realized how much buzz the movie was getting when it was only your second editing feat? And two, what was the most interesting or exciting response you got if it wasn't Kurt Loder's tweet? I'm excited that anybody was responding. You have to understand that like a lot of these films... They do, this kind of attention, and I'm sure you know, is, it's an anomaly completely. I mean, it's really strange. This movie had practically no press, you know? This was, this was kind of a punk rock movie. I mean, a lot of these movies come out and nobody knows about them, or they find they watch them by accident, or they watch them as they're maybe going through their Netflix instance, and they say, oh, I've never heard of this, but I'm going to check it out, you know, if you're lucky. So when I tell people what I worked on, you know, that I've assisted, edited on this, or I've edited that, whether they would like the film or not, often, actually always, 
or almost always, they, they don't know what it is. This movie came out and exploded in the Twitter sphere. I mean, it was just crazy. It was thrilling to see that. And yeah, it is my second film. And it is like interesting that it happened on such a quirky, super low budget movie. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of filmmakers who are well known today started working in films like this exploitation, yeah, the Roger genre. Gorman. Roger Corman, you know, I mean, look at all of the directors and editors and actors and cinematographers. There's so many. And uh, so that's a lot of my inspiration for wanting to work in the B-movie world, aside from, you know, that's the place where I can get a start because it's so, it's a lot of it's so closed off if you don't know people, if you're not already part of the industry, you didn't grow up in it. So B-movies are a way to get in for people like me. Who, who don't have that immediate connection necessarily. And so it was thrilling. It was thrilling to see a small movie do that, to see that it's possible with almost almost no marketing. And just sheer, it's a, it's a little punk of a movie, and I love that about it. I love it. I love that it's a loud, crazy little movie that has, you know, whatever issues it has, and that has whatever charm it has and that it got some attention and that people enjoyed it in whatever way. They, I, I'm glad it got a reaction, whether it was people hating it or liking it or just saying, what the heck is this, <laughs> you know? And that's thrilling to me. You know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled that it's, uh, that it's made an impression. That's, that's such a hard thing to do in, a, in an environment that is heavily controlled by certain companies in the media world that have a large sort of grasp. Of, you sort need of, something. Almost like a, you need, yeah, you need something to, 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 to break out of that, to, to be sure. able to break the surface of the water and say, hey, I'm here too, you know? Yes, you know, it's not made by one of the seven major studios or whatever, but we're here and we made this. And if somebody hears about that, it's amazing. So it, it was thrilling. Lauren and I are big fans of these sort of guilty pleasure films. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I interview an editor, I always want to know what their favorite guilty pleasure film is to watch so whether they're sick and they just need something to watch or what have you so ah. my final question that i always ask every editor is what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch okay well honestly i don't have a guilty pleasure sort of film in that sense i don't think because i don't feel guilty watching them i love exploitation b movie genre i love hollywood mainstream i love foreign films but i can name some films that i think are in the vein of maybe what you're talking about although like I said, I haven't seen a lot of films like Sharknado, okay? But I love, like, the films of Jack Hill. Like, Switchblade Sisters, I think, is really great. Monty Hellman made a couple westerns that I mentioned earlier. The Shooting, Ride in the Whirlwind, which is super low budget with Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson wrote Ride in the Whirlwind. And those are two great westerns that a lot of people need haven't seen and, and should see. I think they would really love them. What else? I mean, I just saw, oh, Basket Case. I saw that like a couple of years ago. What a great, crazy movie. That's so wonderful. I mean, it's, you know, it's got low budget written all over it, but I mean, it's just, it, it doesn't matter. The concept is so strong and you can tell that the director cared about it and uh, it just, it has a real kind of visceral quality. I could go on and on about low budget films. I mean, there's so many great ones. Crazy Mama, Jonathan Demme's McCormick film, Big Bad Mama with uh, Andy Dickinson's great, uh, Bucket of Blood written by Charles Griffith, directed by Roger Corman. Great movie. You know, there's just, I'm, I love, I love cinema and, and part of cinema are those low budget little, little gems that, you know, were made in the mud and that shine anyway. And, uh, I love them. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for letting us interview. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Lauren, that was our interview with William Pudell. It was. 
What did y'all think? Quickly, get on the boards. We don't really need the feedback on this particular podcast on the iTunes review. I wouldn't, (laughs) (laughs) don't maybe, you know, blame Gord's entire show for this one podcast. I don't think that's fair. But email Gord and let him know how it went. And I apologize, but it was incredibly frustrating. And you know what I'd like to talk about? I'd like to talk about Dan Liebenthal. So for the fans of Dan's work, Dan Liebenthal did Iron Man 1, 2, Cowboys and Aliens, Elf. He's awesome. Yeah. That's the point. And we're organizing a live interview online. So it's an interactive interview where you can actually log into AOTG and sit down and ask him questions. Yeah. And, you know, what better opportunity is to talk to, you know, a super busy guy who works on really fun, awesome projects. Yeah. And we're, we're, we haven't locked down a date yet. We're actually, we've been back and forth via email. But uh, we're hoping by the end of September, maybe first week of October. Yeah. And once we get that, you'll, you guys will be the first to know. I'd like to thank William, a really nice guy. And I'm looking forward to his next work. There are rumors of Sharknado 2, but he uh, I think he's sure on something what he's going to work on. Yeah. But yeah, no, he was really great. And um, all the best to him because like, he's at the very beginning of uh, a pretty exciting career, I think. Yeah. yeah. And uh, of course, thanks to Lauren. Thank you, Gordon. I'm your host, Gordon Raquel. Thanks for listening.